0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be in the world. Welcome to this event at the School of Public Policy in the London School of Economics and Political Science. We are very, very honored and very lucky to be welcoming Professor Cass Sunstein with us today. He is uh, one of uh, the world's leading legal scholars, and more than a legal scholar, really, a broad social scientist. But also an influential policymaker. In fact, he joins us today from Washington D.C., where he has just joined the Biden administration in the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Cass, uh, you know, I, I run a school of public policy, and I like to think that people who've had distinguished lives in academia can join the world of policymaking and go back and forth. And there are few people who've done this uh, with more success and influence than our guest today. He is a university professor at at Harvard University based at Harvard Law School. Uh, He has written a number of hugely influential books. My uh, personal favorite is Nudge, written with uh, Richard Thaler, Uh, but he's also been in government um, twice before before this current tour of duty, he was at the Obama uh, White House, both back then and today, working on issues of regulation. The subject of today is uh, his most recent book. I've got it right here. Um, it's, uh, it's a fun book to read. I learned a great deal from reading it. Um, it is short and punchy, and uh, I think it is destined to be as influential as his previous books. The title is Liars, Falsehoods and Free Speech in an Age of Deception. Again, this could not be a more timely topic, a more uh, um, relevant topic from the point of view of politics and public policy. And we are very, very pleased to have him visit with us, even if it's only digitally over Zoom, and tell us about the book. So here's how we're going to do this. We only have an hour, so I'm going to jump Uh, straight into the fray, we will we will hand it over to Cass for um, a 10 to 15 minute uh, sort of introduction to the main points, the main ideas in the book, then I will take advantage of my chair's privilege and ask a couple of questions. And then we will open it up uh, to Q&A from the audience. So please, if you have questions, comments that you'd like to make, just put them in the Q&A chat in Zoom, and I will be glad to pass those on to our speaker today. So without further ado, again, Cass, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for joining us. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and uh, uh, a joy really to get to talk to you on this topic, which has a combination of gravity and mischief in it, I think. Um, that is uh, life is full of falsehoods and some of them are uh, witty and some of them are horrifying. So I have two little epigraphs for you. The first is from Michael Robottom, a wonderful mystery writer who writes the following in a novel. Some lies are selfish. Some inflate or conflate or mitigate or simply omit. Some are told for good reason People lie because they think it doesn't matter. They lie because telling the truth would mean giving up control, or the truth is inconvenient, or they don't want to disappoint, or they desperately want it to be true. I've heard them all. I've told them all. The second is from Shakespeare, and if we were listing Shakespeare's uh what's the right word most um the four lines of his that most show genius this is this i suggest is a is a candidate and notice if you would what he's doing with words and with the human species and notice in particular his puns oh love's best habit is in seeming trust and age in love loves not to have years told. Therefore, I lie with her and she with me, and in our faults by lies we flattered be. Okay, this book was supposed to be a book that was a manifesto against protection of lies and falsehoods of the magnitude that we observe in free society. So it was supposed to be a warning about lies pervasiveness and their adverse effects. But the book defied the author. It ran away from my control. It, um, uh, the topic was like a tiger by the tail that twisted me in circles and turned it into a song with two parts, the first of which is an effort to redeem and deepen and make new the long-standing view in free societies that lies and falsehoods are indeed protected by the free speech principle. So the first part of the song is uh, a Mill-inspired effort to say that free societies have a highly tolerant attitude toward lies and fo- falsehoods for sure, but also lies and for five reasons. Call this the uh, the uh, solemnness nature of any kind of truth police. The first is that the truth police can't be trusted that even in democratic societies full of competent and well-meaning people, the authorities who are attempting to distinguish truth from falsehood will sometimes be mistaken and sometimes be self-interested. And whether the problem is their lack of complete competence or their motivations, that is a reason not to permit prohibition on falsehoods. The second point is captured in words of an American Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, who wrote, compulsory unification of opinion achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. Pause over that if you would. And the idea is if you go after lies, you will find yourself chilling and uh, deterring truth as well. That's not quite a graveyard yet, but it's a very grave matter. The basic idea is that if you tell people that they'll be punished for speaking falsely, they may simply shut up. And that chilling effect on truth is very bad for self-government, for science, for everything that involves progress. The third point associated with Mill is that truth should be living and vibrant and vivid. They should have color they shouldn't be dead dogmas full of gray and dreariness. If we allow challenges to current beliefs, even if they are false, and indeed, even if they are lies, we will have a society in which people are are on the alert, are thinking about what they believe in a way that involves a commitment to them, to those beliefs, rather than a sense that, oh, that's what everyone thinks. Challenges to truth can enliven a society, partly by virtue of putting on the defensive those who believe what is admittedly true. That can be a good thing. It can lead to new truths. The fourth point, which Mill did not emphasize, I think is particularly important today, which is its... uh essential for all of us to know what others think that part of what's true is that people believe what's false and if we suppress those things we won't learn that and we'll know much less about one another if we make it illegal or costly or difficult to voice things that are actually inside people's heads then society will suffer even more than it now does from pluralistic ignorance, meaning ignorance of what other people think. The fifth and final point is that censored communication or belief is surrounded by a magnet, that you create a kind of aura of, um, of heroism for the falsehoods, if you make them unlawful or otherwise punish them. That magnetism of the prohibited is something that free societies ought to avoid, partly because it's not a very good way of dispelling them to give them an aura. It's much better to expose them for what they are. Okay, that's the first part of the song. That's the one that I didn't want to sing, but I couldn't help it. The second part is what I hoped to make the book about, and it is uh, there. And uh, in getting there, I have constantly in mind the scrawled words of William Blake in the margin of Sir Joshua Reynolds' great lectures, in which Reynolds spoke of the necessity and value of generalization in art. Blake wrote, To generalize is to be an idiot. To particularize is the alone distinction of merit. I thank God I am not like Reynolds. I'm going to try to be like Blake and not to be like Reynolds in suggesting that the first part of the remarks, which you just heard, the first part of the book, is too general. We need to particularize the arguments I gave look, I think, a little tinny and high-minded in the face of perjury, in the face of selling a product on the ground that it cures cancer, in the face of lying to the authorities about the alleged criminal actions of your neighbor or your enemy, in the face of libeling private or public figures by saying that they sell cocaine or are engaged in traitorous or other activity when you know it's not true. Supreme Court Justice, American Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that free speech would not protect falsely crying fire in a crowded theater. And that's a very vivid example of why to generalize is to be an idiot. Now, these examples don't give us a framework for distinguishing the first song from the second song. We need principles to separate the false cry of fire in a crowded theater or selling a product on the ground that it cures cancer when it doesn't from cases in which people are, let's say, denying the reality of climate change or making certain arguments about policy which are rooted palpably in false statements of fact. Okay, here's my little framework which was the last chapter written in the book. And it was written I'll confess because a reader of the book said I like this book very much but you don't have a framework and that's that's a problem. So he was right and here's my effort to uh, reduce at least the problem. Um, the, the framework has four Um, parts. The first is what's the state of mind of the speaker? We could have a continuum from uh, a liar who says my neighbor is selling cocaine, which is known to be false, from an innocent falsehood in which someone believes that her neighbor is selling cocaine and happens to be mistaken. And in between those two poles would be cases of recklessness and cases of negligence. Really matters what the state of the mind of the speaker is. If, for example, we are worried about deterring uh, truth, we ought to worry much more about punishing the innocent falsehood from punishing the the intentional lie. The second thing we ought to focus on is the gravity of harm. If someone says that um, uh, COVID 19 isn't real, and to take any precautions or to get vaccinated is pure foolishness. That is highly likely to be harmful, where if someone says that dropped objects don't fall or that Kennedy was never president of the United States, John F. I mean, the harm done by those statements is much less. So the magnitude of harm really matters. And we could distinguish cases from catastrophe to nothing, and we might have points on the continuum that would help us do analysis. The third question is, how likely is harm? If harm is 100% likely to occur, as in the case of a false cry of fire in a crowded theater, then we have greater ground for action than a case in which the likelihood of harm is, let's say, one in 10. And the fourth and final factor is the timing of harm. Is it now? Is it this afternoon? Is it this evening? To those of you for whom it already is this afternoon, or is it in a year or two years? That matters because if the timing isn't imminent, we have an opportunity to reduce the risk of harm through more speech rather than through enforced silence okay, if we put these four points together, state of mind of the speaker, the gravity of harm, the likelihood of harm, and the timing of harm, and we have, let's say, four points on each of the relevant continue up, then we will have a bunch of boxes, lots of lots of boxes in which to have analysis of how to treat the falsehood. Uh, The boxes won't resolve everything to everyone's satisfaction. But they will show us, I hope, why some cases are easy in favor of allowing restriction, why some cases are easy in favor of forbidding restriction, and why some cases are ones on which reasonable people have to discuss the problem with one another. And it's unlikely that analysis can do a lot more than distinguish the easy cases both ways and show us why cases are hard and how we ought to. Uh, on on what we ought to focus in resolving the hard cases. I'll make just one additional point, which is we have uh, 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 two distinctions to be made now. One is between private actors and government, where obviously the room for government to address falsehoods should be less, much less, than the room for private actors to address falsehoods. And the other is that the censorship, non-censorship distinction, which has played a role in my remarks thus far, is extremely crude for this era. That there are things that private entities are doing, which governments ought to be attending to, which are in between doing nothing and censoring, which might involve educative responses, like warnings and referrals to better information, or things at the top, let's say, of a web page that say for information about X or Y or Z, go here. That's not censorship, but it is helpful. Those are educative interventions, and they're also architectural interventions that are short of prohibition that Facebook and Twitter are engaging in that help reduce the power and spreading of falsehoods and lies. Okay, the basic point is that private institutions, and this is the second song, should be doing a lot more than they are now doing to control the most damaging falsehoods and lies. I'll end with a statement from Hannah Arendt. What is at stake here is this common and factual reality itself, and this is indeed a political problem of of the first order. The principle freedom of speech, the freedom of speech, which is foundational and precious, ought not to be taken to forbid reasonable efforts to protect reality.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Cass. That was a great um, summary of some of the very important points in in, in the book. Uh, let us stay for a minute with Blake. Let us get more particular. You gave us. Some, um, some idea toward the end of how one would um, bring this down to earth, but uh, I'd love it if you tell us a bit more and let me, let me be more specific. Um, you know, Using an idea that as you point out, goes, goes back to mill, you talk about the chilling effect uh, of restrictions. Um, and uh, in, in what sounded to me like an economist speaking, but of course you've written a lot with, with economists, you talk in the book about optimal chilling, you know, too much chilling uh, takes us to the graveyard, too little chilling and we've got Donald Trump. Um, So tell us a bit more what that optimal chilling looks like and how we um, make it happen.
1: Okay, thank you for that. So in some countries, uh, the idea of a chilling effect on speech is, is like a trump card no pun meant. It's, it's like a, uh, a knockdown argument, but it shouldn't be. Uh, social norms often impose a chilling effect on lies. If you're really mad at someone, you might be inclined to libel them, but there's a, a norm that says you shouldn't do that. And if you're really want to sell a product, you might be inclined to lie about it. But there are social norms that discourage you from doing that. In ordinary life, all of us unconsciously, I think often, uh, just block ourselves from telling something that's not quite true, because we're chilled by the by norms, and maybe the adverse reputational effect of violating them. So too for law. So if you have law that forbids, let's say, um, fraud, that imposes a chilling effect on certain falsehoods. Hooray for that. If you have a chilling effect on perjury, you have, uh, if you have a law that forbids perjury, you've a chilling effect on lying under oath. And that's a good thing. It, it might deter some people from saying things that are true, but they're not exactly sure. If the perjury law strikes the right balance, uh, that's fine. Um, so we, we want to have optimal chill. We don't want to have no chill. Some free speech advocates think of chill as a bad thing, but there are too many domains in which a chilling effect on lies and falsehoods is really important. It protects people from getting hurt.
0: So making perjury illegal and punishing it is one example of that. Can you give us another example of how we might move toward that optimal, you know, midpoint chilling?
1: Yes, we can, we can work inductively through examples that we agree with, or we can work through top down through principle. Let's, right. let's, I think you're asking, working inductively. So, if you go to the authorities in your community and say something about people in your community whom you want to get in trouble, that's punishable. Uh, to have my various government jobs, I had to fill out lots of forms about my life. And there's clear clarity that if you lie on the forms, that's against the law. I think it's a criminal offense. Um, That's not um, a bad thing from the standpoint of a system of free expression. Um, If you are going to the authorities because of something that's a problem, or you, and you misdescribe what you saw, maybe you're not libeling anybody, that you're feeling mischievous or angry, that in many nations is a crime. Right. If you, in the United Kingdom, as in the United States, there is libel law. And uh, if you have a modern, uh, modern example, if you have a deep fake that you put on uh, online, it's where you portray someone as doing something with the aid of technology that they never actually did that is um, potentially going to subject you to to, to damages. And this is the beginning of a a very long list. If you sell real estate and have certain misrepresentations about the property you're selling, that's punishable. And then we want to build up, I think from those cases to see what is it in those cases that might be brought to bear on current controversies. And something like a framework where the two principal moving parts, uh, I gave you four, but the two principal ones are the state of mind of the speaker and the harm caused by the speech. Now, there are some civil libertarians who start to get really terrified here. And I'll confess that there was a review in The Guardian of of my book, which was, uh, I think the author had a lot of mischief, had a great sense of humor because he lied a lot about the book. (laughs) <laughs> for, for, for the author but the, the author to his credit is very um <coughs> very uh, concerned about the truth police me too but uh, and the me too movement bears on this by the way if someone says i didn't sexually harass someone when they did there are norms against that and if they say that in certain contexts that would be a criminal act to lie um, and, and once we build up from the particulars, we'll probably think uh, an innocent falsehood is radically different from an intentional one, and a uh, something that causes imminent harm with high likelihood is very different from something that is just part of a deliberative process for which the normal and preferred correction and mandatory correction is counter speech, not punishment.
0: As I listen to you, uh, it occurs to me that there are lots of trade-offs and directions that go beyond simply the chilling effect on the thought police danger. Um, The example you gave at at the outset in your last answer was about the kinds of forms and the kinds of disclosures we have to give uh, if we are uh, to become public officials. Could it not be that it's another trade-off here? If you force too much disclosure, people are reluctant for reasons of privacy or what have you, and therefore talented people may stay away from public service? That's an example of a broader principle, of course, is disclosure has costs. And maybe maybe you want people who are really good even though they're not willing to disclose everything about themselves.
1: Completely. So there's a a great topic about uh, information disclosure and the problems it might cause. So if you say to get a job, you have to tell everyone, basically everything about yourself. Some people won't do it, not necessarily because they did anything really wrong, but because they don't want to subject themselves to ridicule or hatred or or something. So that's completely right. Also, if you flood the system with information about, let's say, a product or a person, it may be that uh, people won't pay attention or it may, might, might be that the important parts of the disclosure will be uh, drowned out by the, by the volume. So if you buy a product and there are things about mandatory disclosures that go on for 30 pages, it may be that people are less informed than if the disclosure went on for a paragraph.
0: Or in the realm of public policy, if every discussion between, say, the prime minister and his cabinet has to be public, a lot of good but crazy ideas will never get aired, and maybe we'll get bad policies and not good policies. Um,
1: Completely. So so with respect to mandatory disclosure on the government side, it might be useful to to distinguish between outputs and inputs. So uh, outputs, if the government learns, for example, that drinking water is unhealthy, or if the government has some report about carcinogens, that's the final of a process to make that available to the public is extremely important. I I gave cases involving uh, health and safety, but if there's an internal discussion where various people venture various ideas, uh, the analysis of whether that should be public is, is very different. And your point completely holds that it may be that people are venturing an opinion which if it was put in public would make them look like terrible people, but, and they might not even believe it. They're just trying to make sure the decision is uh, informed by multiple considerations. Uh, James Madison, the principal person behind the US constitution had a big fight, not fist fight, but uh, five words with Thomas Jefferson, who Je- Jefferson it was de- said it was deplorable that the constitutional convention was closed. That's abominable. And uh, Madison responded, "Come on, Jefferson. If if the if the if this was all open, we wouldn't have had a constitution. The mi- minds of people were changing. And it, since it was all private, they could talk in a way that was very candid. And it, as Madison put it, everyone was open to the force of the argument. That wouldn't be true if it was all being broadcast in real time. The discussion.
0: Exactly." Exactly. Okay. So maybe Parliament occasionally has to have sessions that are not public, that would, could improve and not worsen the quality of policymaking. I want to allow myself one last question before we turn to the chat. Um, uh, uh, there are lots of tantalizing ideas in the book. Something else that stayed with me, again, it probably goes back to Mill, is this idea that um, falsehoods may play a useful role because they allow us to learn about the mistakes of others, or the thinking of others more generally. It reminded me of, 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 of a line a colleague of mine here uh, likes to repeat, which is, we ought to have a journal of rejected papers, because one maybe learns more from the bad papers that contains falsehoods than, you know, than from the good papers that actually get published. But you also provide some very good examples of why there are limits to that. You know, there's there silly things about which we really don't want to learn, or we shouldn't really spend much time learning. We certainly wouldn't want to pay a cost for the sake of learning that. Can you tell our audience maybe a little bit more about that trade-off and what, that, what it implies in, 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 uh, in terms of policy?
1: Okay, so there's uh, the basic proposition which is that if a number of people believe something about uh, unidentified flying objects and space aliens, or people believe conspiracy theories about the government or about companies, or if people believe things about diseases and their origins, let's say, um, there are two things that are important to say in favor of protecting them. One is we should always have a little part of our minds that is humble and thinking that we might be wrong and our fellow citizens might be right. So uh, during World War II, a famous judge with an unlikely name, Learned Hand, Learned Hand, what a terrible parent to give your kid the name Learned if your last name is Hand. Nonetheless, he succeeded in life. And he said in World War II, the spirit of liberty is that spirit which is not too sure that it is right. I love that because he didn't say the spirit of liberty is that spirit which is not sure that it is right, which is not too sure that it is right. So with respect to everything, we might have a sense there's some chance we're wrong. The other thing is, even if, you know, the chance that we're wrong is infinitesimally small, if you learn that your fellow citizens have a conspiracy theory that's preposterous, or I'll give an example where I have a view that's firm, which is a lot of my fellow citizens don't believe climate change is real. To censor that would be preposterous. And there are 18 reasons for that. But one of the 18 reasons is that we should know that our fellow citizens think that. I mean, they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity, as do we when we make a mistake. We all do. So that's the, the basic proposition. Now, as I say, that 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 as a knockdown argument for protection of lies and falsehoods, that is too high for loop. Because if someone says, you know, on- online, let's say, uh, that uh, that the polls are closing at a certain hour, so don't bother to vote after that. And the, and they're, they're they believe that, let's say. That's what they believe. Right. For Facebook to take that down is actually very reasonable
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the ground that you're gonna stop people from going to the polls. And maybe the time when they can go to the polls, that's the only time. And they've just been told the polls are closed. And to say you need to learn what your fellow citizens think, I wanna say with President Biden, come on, man. <laughs> this is something that injures democracy, potentially for a lot of people. Right. And even if it's what other people think, the idea that Facebook has to allow it, not so clear. Now, for, governments should tread very lightly. But for, for governments, if someone truthfully says, let's say, but, but re- recklessly, right. something that's libelous, in both the United States and the United Kingdom, right. damages can be sought. And it might be that it was not an intentional falsehood, but it was reckless. If we look at both sides of the ledger, that is someone's reputation has been, let's say, uh, badly damaged because of a falsehood that was said recklessly, but Mm -hmm. make them pay, I say.
0: All right, thanks very much for that. Um, I am tempted to keep Posing questions, but I'm going to be disciplined and uh, allow the audience to pose some of their own questions as well. There are lots and lots. I should say that we have uh, 259 people from uh, a bunch of different countries joining us uh, this morning, London time, even earlier where uh, you are in Washington, D.C. Um, I will not be able to do justice to all the questions, but let me just begin with the following one Robert Craig has one what might call sort of a postmodern question. He says, John Stuart Mill's arguments in favor of freedom of speech were predicated on there being some kind of objective truth out there. But of course, he adds, this assumption no longer seems safe or tenable. So how do we think about this when the relationship between truth and power is slippery and where in today's world there's no one truth, but simply multiple incompatible perspectives?
1: Well, I think I want to start by questioning the premise. So dropped objects fall, Um, two plus two equals four, notwithstanding a scene in 1984 that tries to put that in question. Uh, Human beings are mortal. Uh, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden is president of the United States. Mm -hmm. The earth is round. Climate change is real. Maybe one or more of those can be claimed to be contentious, but you get the idea. So Barack
0: Obama was born in the United States.
1: He was indeed. Uh, (laughs) um, I don't have as much hair as I used to. that's, That's truth. So the number of things that are objectively true is very, very large. So I'm not sure what's meant by whether we could rescue something in the premise of the question. Uh, There are things that are unclear. So the idea that the planet is gonna warm by a specific, the, the damage of a certain level of warming is a certain amount by 2100, that's unclear. And reasonable people have different views about that. But what the, the topic of the book isn't the um, uh, the the unclear where we're not sure if it's true. It's it's where there is truth and the universe of truths. Foucault, notwithstanding, I think Foucault ultimately would agree with this, is because he was a historian. is is very high. He purported to be saying truths.
0: Thank you. Um, Let me move to a question from Jana Imeshek Nova. It's brief and it is punchy. She says, how far would causing offense count as causing harm and therefore it ought to be censored?
1: You want to be very careful about that. Mm -hmm. And since the word censored is helpfully in the end of the sentence yeah. A good presumption is that offense is never a sufficient reason for government censorship. Yeah. One thing that's making me feel that I'm generalizing here and therefore being idiotic maybe is that Germany forbids uh, Holocaust denial and as does Facebook. Now Facebook's a private actor, so it's not a government. Is Germany... Making a mistake there, it might be that to describe Holocaust denial as offensive is under descriptive, and the ground for forbidding Holocaust denial is not in Germany is it's not about offense; it's about something something worse.
0: But would, would, would the same principles that apply to governments apply to university administrators? Uh, I don't know what the context of the question is, but it seems to me that a natural context in which to pose that question is the current debate over what can and cannot be said on university campuses if it causes offense.
1: Okay, great. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to limit my kind of million answer to uh-huh. governments. Now we distinguish in in the United States between a university that is publicly funded and is part of the government, like the University of Massachusetts is. Uh-huh. It's a public university in that sense. Harvard isn't, it's a private university. And uh, this might seem like a formal distinction. It's, it, it's tracking the law and there might be good reasons for that. I think there are. Um, a university has, I was picking up, I was kind of trying to rescue myself with the word censored, which I was trying to understand as a governmental action, that right. you're making this a tougher question. So uh, suppose in a university setting, in a classroom, one student is saying things to another student that are offensive. Uh, maybe they're racial epithets, maybe they're gender things. Um, the word offense is so capacious that maybe we wanna say what's happening there isn't mere offense, like your paper isn't very good. That's, that causes offense or your writing is terrible. <laughs> it's offensive. But it's not like saying using some word, some epithet, or attacking someone, let's say because of their skin color and it, we, we might want to have a distinction, and the university might be able to say, thank you for the question that that it's it's an essential part of its mission that it be able to protect people in certain ways, not from offense but from certain things. Now what balance to strike between providing that kind of protection of the learning environment and allowing ample room for disagreement and debate, that that can pose some hard questions. I mean, if a teacher of math starts saying, you know, I think the following about Catholics, and it's not good, that teacher can, can be told, you're a math teacher, don't do that. Or, if a teacher of history does something similar, uh, the university can legitimately say there, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite offense. I think once we got uh, a description of what the problem is, we'd be able to satisfy ourselves that mere offense is part of what life contains and it's okay. I,
0: I tend to agree with you, although. As I'm sure you're aware, this is a very contentious um, and ongoing uh issue on university campuses on both sides of the Atlantic. Probably on that side a bit more than on this side, but uh but on both. Um there are a couple of questions which go to the same point, so I'm going to try to summarize them. A couple of people say that there are things that we are we're not sure about today, you know, they may or may not be true. Maybe later on, we become aware that they were false, but in the meantime, repeating them causes harm. Um, uh, So uh, Mark Leiser, who's a professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands, poses the question more or less in the way I just described. And then he says, how do you view the obligation to correct falsehoods in light of changes over time?
1: Okay, so let's suppose, we'll give an example. Let's suppose in some year in the past when it wasn't clear if climate change was real, people were debating it vigorously. And uh, uh, some people who thought it was real thought this is extremely harmful, that people are denying a phenomenon. Or let's give a more recent and maybe vivid example. Uh, Some people were saying in 2020 that, uh, uh, that COVID-19 wasn't real or wasn't going to spread when that was false and it turned out to be false. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the thing to do is that the universe of things that our history reveals are false is really large and that censoring them in real time would be a terrible blunder because you don't know in real time how things are going to unfold. And the claim of harm is by hypothesis speculative because truth hasn't been ascertained yet. So Galileo got in trouble for his scientific claim. That was very bad. Uh, But to see the uh, people whom Galileo was correcting as censorable First, it's unrealistic, because they were in power. Second, it wasn't clear that they were wrong yet. And uh, Mill is, you know, my book has an ambivalent relationship to Mill. He does emerge scathed, but he's still a hero
0: of the planet. We're all liberals after all, I suppose. Uh, At least least, uh, on university campuses, we are. Um, there are lots of questions about the role of tech companies, and I'm not going to read any one of them. But uh, the, the gist of the questions uh, it tends to be, you know, there's some people who say, give us more detail, Professor, uh, about what it is that they should be doing more of. Other people say, well, they're engaging in censorship. How can we tolerate that? So between those two, uh, between that that rock and a hard place, Give us a bit more detail maybe on what the tech companies ought to be doing.
1: Okay. So I, sh- I should disclose that uh, I've been a consultant to Facebook. I think a, a total of a uh, paid consultant, a total of three hours over the last uh, 40 years or <laughs> it's really been that long. But a total of three hours, nonetheless, full disclosure. Um I think face I'll just give one example. I think Facebook's policy with respect to deep fakes is inadequate. That if there is a deepfake that portrays someone as doing something horrible in a way that viewers would regard as authentic, Facebook policy is insufficiently broad to, to capture that. So the there is a deepfake policy. It goes in the right direction compared to where it was before, but it's it's not uh, capacious enough with respect to health or safety. Its policy has an imminence requirement in it that I think should be rethought. Now I was uh, um, uh, inclusive of imminence in my four-part framework, but the fact if harm is certain, it's catastrophic, and it's a product of a lie and it's not imminent, I say Facebook should do something about it. Now, what exactly it should do is a TBD. It might involve more warnings. It might involve more um, uh, down, downgrading of dissemination. It might involve taking taking stuff down. Um, but health and safety is another category where falsehoods, Facebook ought to be uh, um, give more consideration to to remedy. Let's put it that way. Um, With the the view that Facebook is too sensorial, um, its community standards do not, it seems to me, support that conclusion that it's too sensorial. With respect to particular practices, we can have some
0: discussions. Could we worry about the old problem of who controls the controllers?
1: So Facebook has called for regulation of itself. And and Facebook is right to call for regulation of Facebook. Mm -hmm. We we wouldn't want to do it in a way that, you know, allows government to pick and choose what speech is allowed. But for a private entity to have full control over matters of privacy, of democracy, of health and safety, that's... um,
0: not ideal. So if the gov- government should not have full control over that, and if we don't want Facebook on its own in the middle of the night deciding whether Joe Blow or Donald Trump should have access or not to their accounts, what's the midpoint? If it's not government, it's not Facebook. Do we need to create yeah. some institution, some regulator, autonomous perhaps?
1: Well, no, I think a, a government entity that oversees subject to free speech
0: constraints
1: is a a really good idea. So you could imagine some modest things that such a regulator could do. It could say that there have to be transparency requirements Mm -hmm. and there has to be fidelity to the standards that the uh, entity is transparent about. So if there are community standards for protection of speech and regulation of speech, there might have to be, and this is a very modest step, reporting of various kinds. There could be something that says if there's speech that's regulable under current standards, let's say liable, uh, Facebook, if it doesn't take the material down, uh, will itself have to pay damages so long as it has notice of the existence of the material on its platform. So there's a lot of discussion of what social media platforms should be liable for that appears on their platform. It is fair to say that social media platform isn't like uh, a newspaper, that the amount of material there is not something that it currently can uh, get visibility into instantly. But if it's on notice that there's something that is now in violation of law, for it to have to pay, if it doesn't do something about that, that's reasonable as a newspaper would have to pay.
0: And in terms of the institution should that government regulator be a political appointee or do we want somebody more insulated from the political process maybe like an independent central bank but for for these purposes.
1: You know as uh, right now I am working in the Biden administration and uh, <laughs> think issues involving what government should do I would given my current role I would say what the book says about that is what I would revert to. And the book doesn't say anything about that. So right. I would revert to silence.
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, uh, we're running out of time, but maybe we have uh, uh, time for one question, perhaps two. Um, Charles Sherwood um, says, what is your view of lying during negotiations? It seems customary to lie about your reservation prize. And the competing offers that you have received, is this kind of deceit acceptable, or is it not?
1: A great question. So there's a chapter in the book that tries to engage the ethical issues, and uh, the negotiation one confounds standard analysis. So one reason to not to lie is it treats other people as uh, means rather than ends. It's content. It's a form of disrespect. Another reason is that uh, if you lie, you're probably gonna screw a lot of things up. Typically, that's the utilitarian objection. You might ruin your own reputation. You might ruin an activity or process. And that's, that's Bentham. Uh, negotiation is a special context where it might be uh, built into the process that people aren't going to be completely truthful. And uh, a little like poker, um, you know, gambling, where if you bluff or do things that indicate something that is inconsistent with reality, that's part of, part of the game. Um, so I, I don't know about conclusion there, but the, the ethical strictures online are weakened, I think, in certain kinds of negotiation because people know what's afoot.
0: Right. Okay, negotiators and poker players. Um, you're allowed to do what you're doing. One last question um, on a big subject. Sean says, maybe the increase in lying has to do with the decline of religion. Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, I want to ask, is there actually an increase in lying? And that's an empirical question to which the answer is less than clear. Uh, the, the suggestion that there's a causal connection between Lying and not believing in God, that's a reasonable suggestion. Uh, Whether it's true, I don't know. But many people of faith have uh, a a deep sense that lying is um, something, a a form, a kind of sin. And many of the strongest, uh, much of the strongest writing on the ethics of lie uh, comes from theology. So that's a completely fair point uh, and a really interesting point. Uh, I'll end in response to the question with uh, a a psychological point, which uh, connects with faith, I think, which is that if people are told something that is false and then they're told in real time that it was false. Okay, I'll give you an example. It's snowing in Washington right now. You're seeing sunlight, but amazingly, there's a big snowstorm looking out the window. I just lied. Okay, sorry, but I did to make a point, which is that uh, some of you are gonna remember months later that you heard a speaker who mentioned that it was snowing in May in Washington. Mm -hmm. Even though I told you it was a lie, which makes uh, the need to be very careful about homilies, about protection of truth Mm -hmm. uh, stronger because falsehoods get under the skin, even if we're told in real time that they're false, it's called truth bias. Human beings tend to be, probably for evolutionary reasons, uh, presumptively inclined to believe what they hear, even if they are told that was false.
0: Wonderful. What a great way to end uh, 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 an absolutely uh, informative and thought-provoking hour. I know Professor Sunstein has another call, another webinar, so we will release him, uh, let me just say on behalf of everybody at the LSE, everybody who's joined the call from all corners of the world, uh, how grateful we are. That was really wonderful. Um, the book is out. You can read it. I would uh, I would really recommend it. Um, and again, um, thank you. Thank you, Cass. Um, I guess it's sunny in Washington. Um, Joe Biden is in office uh, uh, and he's lucky to have you. So many, many thanks. Thank you to everybody who joined. Um, and I hope to see you again at some other LSC School of Public Policy event.